Welcome to Pocketry Presents, the podcast for emerging and aspiring poets. I'm Indrani Pereira, the founder of Pocketry, the home of unheard voices. I'm coming to you from the lands and waterways of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge this is stolen land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. In this episode of Pocketry Presents, I'm interviewing an established poet about their creative process and their experience in getting their poetry published. Joining me today from Wurundjeri country in Victoria is Peter Bukowski. Melbourne-based poet Peter Bukowski fell in love with the map of the world at the age of six. In 1983, he wrote his first poem while staying at a friend's farmhouse in Waco, Texas, in response to receiving a Dear John letter from a Melbourne girl. As a result of that fateful letter, Peter ended up travelling for seven years, caught a freight train across Montana, lived in a cave on a Mexican island, and ate gazelle cooked in stale blood with road builders in the Central Africa Republic. Peter has been writing residence in Rome, Paris, Macau, Suzhou, China, Battery Point, Tasmania, Greenmount, Western Australia, and at the Broken Hill Writers' Festival. His poems continue to appear in literary magazines worldwide and have been translated into Arabic, Bahasa Indonesia, Bengali, French, German, Italian, Japanese, Mandarin, and Polish. In February 2015, Editions du Cé of Paris published a bilingual edition of his selected poems entitled Le Coeur à Trois Heures du Matin. Peter's aim as a poet is to write as clearly as possible. No matter how many books he writes in his lifetime, they'll all be about what it's like to be a human being. Wow, what an incredible bio, Peter, and I am so pleased to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I thought we'd get started by talking about the creative process. I'm always fascinated about what goes on behind the scenes and how things happen. And I wanted to ask you to start off with where you write and what tools you use to write with. Well, when I first started writing, it was on a manual typewriter. And supplementary to that, I always carry a notepad and a writing implement, Um, usually a little notepad that I could fit in my breast pocket. And um, I like fountain pens a lot, but I also like a nice um, hard pencil. These days, I mainly compose straight onto the computer, the the, uh, laptop, and on a Word document, and it's labour-saving. But at the same time, I'm very aware of uh, the first draft is not always the the finished poem. And uh, but it's, it's directly I had a mental block about the computer for a while, but I've overcome that. And these days you submit poems to magazines, copy it into the body of an email or send it as a Word document. So I've entered this century uh quite happily and can see the advantages going directly on the computer. Did you find that transition from going to the pen and paper to the screen, did your writing process or your poetry change at all as a result of that? Not really. I've always looked at writing a poem as sculpture. You write the first draft and then you look at each line And if there's anything superfluous, you get rid of it and you sort of prune and sculpt the poem. And visually, I sort of trim it down and I test 
the length of each line and how it sounds and whether it sounds clunky. So it's that method of cutting down and trimming and tightening that that hasn't really changed. It's just the trimming and tightening rather than retyping the poem on a piece of paper on a manual typewriter. Now we can press the delete and the backspace button on the computer keyboard. Do you keep the first draft that you write on the screen? Not really. I find that gets too messy. Um, I'm very ruthless about deleting a poem that's just not getting anywhere. And, you know, I, I consider it like going down a path and working out whether that's a good path or a waste of ultimately a false path and I have to retrace my steps back to the starting point. So it's all a, all a learning process and uh, revision is a really big part of what I talked about before about sculpture and refining and honing the poem. When you're going down that path and you're thinking maybe I need to stop going down this path and go back to the start, is there a signpost for you, something that tells you, oh, hang on a minute, this poem's not working? Well, there's a quote by William Faulkner and he said, um, no interest for the writer, no interest for the, the reader. So if writing the poem is becoming a chore and it's not really engaging yourself as the writer, then it's a sort of straining. You're straining perhaps to say something. So it's I find it's best to go back to the very starting point or a clean slate and have a, have a rethink and start off again. With those poems that you're straining over, would you ever leave them and walk away and come back at some point later and maybe look at them with fresh eyes? Well, when I first started writing, I had this manila folder with scraps of ideas and the manila folder got thicker and thicker and I found that realistically I didn't go back to the ideas and one day I just got the very thick manila folder and put it in the recycle, the physical domestic recycle bin (laughs) and put it out with the weekly rubbish and it was very liberating. So I still have subject matter that, you know, I might decide I really want to write a poem about a snail and I'll just have to find the right way to approach the subject matter. And obviously sometimes I have a few false starts and then it can be more profound subject matter. Um, For example, writing about my parents' divorce, I had a couple of goes at doing that and then found what I call the right way into the subject matter. So it's trial and error like like anything. Do you move through that trial and error process? Is that a, a fairly quick process that you're doing it? It niggles and nags me. So I can revise a poem sometimes four times within 72 hours or even four times within eight hours because I don't want to lose this sort of excitement of trying to get it right. But then sometimes I might be mentally or physically exhausted and I need a break from it. And then your subconscious is still thinking about it. So 
that phrase, uh, you know, sleep on it, that sometimes works too. So it's it's either staying at the coal face on the on the same day or coming back to it. It's it's a matter of experience, um, intuition, how exhausted you are. Do you feel a bit, you know, I'm just in a bit of a fog today, you know, you've got to break through the fog. And part of writing is is time and having the time to to think about your subject matter. I'm wondering, is there a specific time of day or a season when you write? And are you writing in response to anything in particular, be that an emotional state, political events, personal history? I tend to write during the daytime. So recently, my partner and I were going to a retreat in East Gippsland and I try and be at the writing desk by 9am and commit to being there till at least 12 noon. And that was really working for me because I was doing that each day and I was writing a poem a day and it's like being in training. So if you're really in regular training, your mind is sort of... uh, is is sort of really ripe, I suppose. And of course, eventually you drain the pool, so to speak, but it's surprising what your subconscious comes up with. And you know, I've been I've been writing now for a, a long time. So I'd rather face the blank page than be scared of the blank page. So does um, that mean you'd rather sit down at a time and look at that blank page and wait for something to come? rather than ignoring it and running away? The key, though, is to face the blank page calm but open. And even if you're writing about difficult subject matter, say a divorce or a relationship breakup or the death of a family member, you still got to face that page calm but open. And so if you let any negativity enter your thinking when you're facing the blank page, like, oh, I haven't written anything for a few weeks. I've got no ideas. Oh, what can I possibly write today? If you start that self-inflicted negativity and pressure on yourself, then you're going to sort of be locked and blocked. So calm but open. And so I have to still practice that each time and not get into any anxiety at, at all about and part of that is having protected writing time where you've got a slab of writing time you can't just sit down and think i've got 59 minutes to write something before i've got a driving lesson oh and then you look at your watch and go oh i've got 54 minutes what am i going to write about you, you can't do it you've really got to have protected writing time and i would say from experience make that a whole day protected writing time or a six-hour minimum. When you're at that blank page, are there particular things that have drawn you there or that you tend to write about? I've always got a subconscious list of things to write about. So, for example, I've, all, I've for a long time I've had this idea of writing a poem about a giraffe. So it's on my list of things to write about. So I can approach the subject matter in two ways. I can either research giraffes or I can actually go and hang out somewhere where I can observe giraffes or I can just imagine, you know, maybe I could come up with imagining 
a giraffe suddenly talking to me. So I don't know, but it's on my list of things to eventually write about. So, and then sometimes I might create a fictitious character in a poem, and that character may reappear in further poems in different situations. So, sometimes I create fictitious uh, criminals in poems, and they can sometimes reappear in a series of poems, and that might be every day for a few days, or it might be they might reappear after a two year gap. Because I do a lot of portrait poems of real and fictitious people. So with your fictitious criminal, would they appear in a series of your books because you've had quite a number of books published or do they tend to just come for a particular book? They often just come for one book and I've read a lot of crime fiction so I know about certain things like once you commit a crime, you usually often have a hideout that you go to and you've got to get from where you've committed the crime to the higher hideout and then you've got to be really good at not leaving a trail and chilling out in that hideout till the heat wears off till the police are no longer looking for you and then you might want to assume a disguise and a different alias and come out of that hideout so I'm very familiar with that sort of territory but Also, I try not to repeat the very same situations again and again. So I try to make the characters different, their concerns different, their obsessions different, their successes and their failures different. And I'm wondering how often you write. Are you writing every day? You spoke about being on the retreat and having that three-hour block each day to write. Is that a usual practice for you or are you more ad hoc? Well, I've got the ability, um, as I'm retired from having a day job, I can write poetry every day, which is a live stream. But often there's organisational and administrative things for me to do, like I'm often organising poetry tours. So I've just finished a book and I'm very busy self-organising poetry tour of New South Wales for October and then a South Australian poetry tour for November and I'm already thinking about 2023. I get the map of Australia out, plan a geographically sensible poetry tour. So I promote the idea of, of writing every day or certainly writing every week, being in training, being in mental observational training like like an athlete, you know. When you're writing your poems, I'm wondering how you actually write them. So are they coming out as dot points, sentences, fragments, paragraphs? Well, of course, you have to come out with the first line. But sometimes, say, if I've got my physical or mental list of things to write about. For example, I had an eight-hour heart operation when I was younger, and I put surgery on my list of things to write about. and I wanted to come up with a refreshing way to describe an anaesthetist. So I was walking through the Fitzroy Gardens with my notepad in my pocket, with my writing implement in my jacket pocket, and I came up with the three words or the phrase, Sheriff of Pulses. That was my refreshing way to describe an anaesthetist. And those, the rest of the poem 
built around those three words. So that those three words are in the middle of the poem called Surgery. The first image in the poem has got to do with um, nurses, nurses entering the, the ward, the intensive care unit where I was. So sometimes the first line comes later. You know, the poet Charles Bukowski said in regards to a poem, get in, get out, don't linger. So you, you go to where the action and the guts of the poem is. And sometimes in the first draft, you have a preamble. You're so excited to write, be writing something on a blank page that you might start to describe, you know, it was an overcast day, the garbage truck went past, I could feel the scar or the splinter in my middle finger. And then you write the rest of the poem and then you read it back to yourself and you think, does the reader really need to know about the weather, the garbage truck going past and the fact that you've got a splinter in your middle finger? No, they don't need to know that. And so you get rid of that preamble. And, and a good test of that is if you think of a poetry magazine editor getting a whole lot of poems You've got to win them over in the first eight lines of the poem. So I'm always telling people to look at where the poem really starts and start with that engaging the reader from the get-go. And that's through practice, you know. That's very good advice, I think. And it's a bit like short stories in that yeah. sense as well, you know. Don't mess around with all the extraneous detail but jump yeah. straight in. Yeah, and over-description over is, uh, you know, when you read a novel and it over-describes the entry of a person into, the, into a room, you sort of think, get to the action. And you, it's the same with going to the cinema. If the first 20 minutes of a film is the camera following the movement of a seagull for five minutes, you sort of think, get on with it, you know. <laughs> yes. I'm wondering with um, writing, you spoke about the blank page and the need to have calmness and not to have any negative thoughts and made me think when you were speaking about that, if you have writer's block at all, if you experience that or you think it exists. It does exist, but I feel from experience the way I cure that is by nourishing myself as a writer and as a human being. So I do that by three things. And the, one of the most important ones is constantly, I'm constantly reading. I'm reading other poets. I'm reading um, collections of aphorisms and epigrams and sayings and proverbs. And I'm going for walks uh, around Melbourne and I'm observing things and I'm observing people. And that's another form of nourishment. Sometimes I'll see a person and that'll give me, that person will give me the cue for a fictitious character that I've created. And the other way is just simply by thinking about the big things in life, you know, why we're here, what's our purpose, is there a life after death, identity, am I more than one self, what are my regrets, what are my dreams, what are my aspirations, all those big things. I mean, you can't always think I'm going to write a big philosophical poem today, but the very fact that you're thinking about the mysteries of life that's you've got to be being a poet is a 24 7 thing so I talk about being alert to the world 
So being alert to people, language, environment, nature, the light, the sky, clouds, apartment, buildings, it's it's just being alert and being open to what you're experiencing. And part of it is getting out your front door. Also having a, an imagination. So sometimes I set myself the challenge of writing a, a poem in the opposite gender to myself. I really enjoy writing poems where the main narrative voice is the voice of a woman. And I've got to make that voice uh, credible. I know now there's the topic of appropriation, but if you think of it, someone like Flaubert wrote Madame Bovary. And, you know, I feel we have to allow writers to write imaginatively. Like I've written now a couple of poems where the main character in the poem is a are aliens come to planet Earth to uh, study human beings. So some people would say maybe I'm not allowed to do that as I'm not an alien, but that's a whole subject matter for another time. We could spend, I think, a whole podcast or series of podcasts on that topic, but I really do appreciate the way that you're looking at other voices and you're bringing things into poetry that we might not normally associate with poetry, such as, um, you know, reoccurring criminals or aliens. It's different to a lot of poetry that you might read, which tends to be, you know, more personal. So I really do appreciate your take on poetry and introducing these other characters into it. And I'm wondering, just to finish off the first part of the interview if you've got any additional tips for budding writers who are looking to improve their poetry you've already given some suggestions about what you do I went on a poetry tour of northwestern Victoria with a biographer, Adrian Caesar, who's also a poet, and he said, look at pivotal moments in a life and your own life and write about those pivotal moments. And in my own life, my father taking me to my first public library was a pivotal moment. Uh, My heart operation and my heart condition are obviously pivotal. My traveling, my love of the map of the world, that's pivotal. And so you might worry that it's not of universal appeal, but I feel if you have a pivotal moment and you really enter it, the genuine emotion and power of that emotion and that feeling, so long as you refrain from making it sentimental and cosmeticize or dilute that pivotal moment, you know, it can be a shocking moment. It can be a moment of someone invaded your space or touched you inappropriately. But, you know, if you're still thinking about those moments 20, 30, 40 years after they happen, then they're pivotal moments. And the idea of sharing a life experience with other human beings, that's how how we connect. So, and you can make those pivotal moments You can give that to a third-person character you've created so you feel a bit safer from that pivotal moment, but don't dilute the experience. Um, And then my last tip is, uh, this is attributed to Robert Frost, make your 
next poem different from your last. So a variety of subject matter, tackle a variety of things, stretch yourself, don't repeat yourself, and think about the refreshing image and the refreshing way of of saying things. And that's through practice. That's fantastic. That's heaps for all the listeners there to think about. For the next part of the interview, I'd like to find out more about your experience in getting your work published. And I know that you've been writing poetry for a very long time, 40 years in fact. And I'd like to ask you if you could cast your mind back and if you can remember where your first poem was published and how it felt to see your name in print. The very first magazine where I or journal that I got a poem in was Matoid, which came out of Deakin University in Geelong. And yeah, it was a thrill to see it in print. Um, prior to that, I'd had uh, music journalism published in various sort of rock magazines, but my first poem in Matoid. And from then I went on with a lot of youthful enthusiasm to submitting poems by snail mail all over the world and uh, one year my postage bill was $900 from submitting poems and so I really encourage people to submit their poems to test whether their poem resonates with people beside just their mum you know you've really you've really it's part of being a published poet you really do have to build up a track record it's it's undeniable and it's it's a test i find the actual reality of putting three poems in an envelope or in a word document and you're about to press the send button or put them in the letterbox it makes you re-look at the poem just before you send it and sometimes you fix up the, the poem And even if the poem's still rejected, you feel you've got an improved poem or else you send the poem off to a magazine, comes back rejected, you look at the poem that you've been waiting a month to get the response on and you re-look at it after a month and you yourself can see the flaws in the poem. So the whole process I find instructive, you know, um, I've had hundreds of rejection slips, you know, and it's, you just, that's just the reality. I mean, I'm still trying very prestigious magazines, which I hope to sort of crack. And um, I just carry on. One of my three Ps before I talked about positivity facing the blank page, the other one is persistence. I've simply persisted for 40 years and I'm still going to persist, you know. So you, you said there's three Ps. So we've had two of the Ps. What's the third P? Practice. The middle one is practice. So I taught myself how to write poetry and I'm still a student of language. I'm still testing ways words fit together, what power or lack of power an adjective has, whether an image is refreshing or um, a cliche, you know, you're always after the, you know, before we talked about the first line of a poem and some, 
you know, you're after a killer line or you're after a refreshing image and you can't sit down and say, I'm going to write a killer line. But if you can write a line which I call a grabber, you know, if because the idea is to engage the reader. You draw the reader in and you've got two tools as a writer. You've got narrative or story, which is your one tool, and you've got image. That's all you've got. And so as a child, when I read science fiction adventure stories, it was the images that the writer created in my child's mind's eye that enthralled me, that captivated, that kept me reading reading the book. And that's, that's what we try to do as, as writers, to engage and keep the reader's attention and engagement through to the end of the poem. And we do that by practicing our craft and and getting across the essential and the important and the and the humorous as well. Poetry has to compete with film and music. Like certain music engages engages us and certain music doesn't do much for us. So we have to think of the qualities of our craft which engage people. I liked the way you were talking about the two tools of the writer, the image and the narrative, and trying to find those lines that are going to grab the attention of the reader. And I'm wondering with the poems, when you send them off, do you share them with anybody else to see if they're going to grab a reader's attention? What I do is I mainly show a poet friend of mine in Adelaide some of my poems And that's to fix up sort of technical things about the poem. Or my friend's quite diplomatic, but he'll tell me whether a poem sort of doesn't do much for him. So, and I can take it, you know, some people might be scared of losing a friendship, but, you know, if you can find someone who can, willing to look at your work, if you don't overburden them, with that, um, occasionally send them a poem and pay attention to what they say, then it can be definitely, definitely helpful. And of course, if you believe strongly in certain aspects of your poem, you may want to not take on or incorporate your friend's advice. But um, if you can find it, I get approached all the time by people saying, Peter, can you look at my poems? But I didn't set myself up to be an editor. So I have a really hardcore policy of, I, you know, I feel I'm here on this earth to write poems. I'm not here to edit your poems. Sometimes people get upset and think I'm being ungenerous, but I've got to protect myself. And before I talked about protected writing time. So that's my, my situation. I'm going to switch gears just here now. And I'm interested in hearing about your experience in having your poems translated into other languages. In the bio at the start, there was quite a few. And I'm wondering what that's like. I have no idea. So please tell me about it. Well, I've been in the really wonderful situation of having my poems translated into French. And I had two French people doing that and the fact that there's two of them is really good because they sort of argue and joust about 
how should we translate this line of Peter's poems? And they, they sort of have a conference about it and reach an agreement. And it's the same, I have two German translators and we're lucky enough that they, they live in Melbourne. So we have a monthly translation meeting and they can run any questions by me. But with translation, it's a matter of trust, I suppose. You have to trust. And I met the two German translators at a translation conference organized by Monash University. And I saw how meticulous and keen these two particular German women who came along to the conference were. And I approached them about carrying on our translation after the conference. And we've now been doing it for a couple of years. And it's a creative act in itself. And it demands, I suppose, mutual respect. They respect you as the poet and you respect them as the thoughtful, diligent translator. And, you know, sometimes you'll have um, works translated into Russian and then a new set of Russian translators will come along. Like when I talked before about Madame Bovary, I think there's been three translations from French into English. And so it's a creative act. So you might want to read all three French translated into English editions of Madame Bovary and see which one you get the most out of. With your translated poems, what happens to them once they're in a different language? Well, at the moment, we submit them to German literary magazines and we've had some success with that. Quite a prestigious magazine in Dresden has published the poems in English and German and the game plan is eventually to get a selected bilingual edition published in the German-speaking world. That sounds fantastic to go with your French. Yeah, yes. but that, that was a 10-year process. That took 10 years to achieve that. That's a long time. Sure. And the translation, you know, it's a labour of love. Um, I'm not paying the German translators and we get together and I don't overburden them. We translate one poem, well, two poems per session and we leave a month gap or longer between the sessions. I'm wondering with the translations, do you speak any of the languages that your poems are translated into? Rudimentary German. Uh, German was spoken in the family home when I was growing up, but it's, it's, my German is incomplete and rusty. So I'm wondering then how you know if the translators translating your poem have got that sense, that particularness that that poem has, if you know what I mean. I still know enough German, for example, to get a sense. And sometimes I find that my, when they recite it in German, some of my German comes back to me. And then sometimes I just simply like the sound. It sounds, you know, people can, some people think German's a harsh language, but it's got some very nice sounding language in it that is there as well. We've maybe seen too many. World War II movies with nasty Germans in them. <laughs> and so we have this, this hangover image of it being a harsh, raspy language, but it can be a very tender, sweet language as well. I mean, I'm sure in, in uh, Indian language or Urdu language, you can say some, 
swear words in those languages and make them sound harsh, or you can say some terms of endearment in those languages and make them sound tender and beautiful. Mm. Tone, I think, can... Tone. Tone, yeah. Mm. Can convey a lot. I'm really fascinated by this idea of translating work into other languages because it's one of the things that poetry is passionate about, which is publishing work in other languages along with an English translation because there are so many poets in Australia from so many different backgrounds who have who have languages other than English. And I think it's really important to have work in languages other than, in, than English. So it's wonderful. And I really look forward to one day maybe reading some of your German poems or Bahasa Indonesia poems. That would be wonderful, even if I can't actually pronounce the words. There's something beautiful, I think, about seeing other scripts on the page. Mm, yeah. I was wanting to sort of backtrack now a little bit. You alluded to earlier about having hundreds of rejections and I'm wondering what does Peter now do when he gets a rejection from a journal? If I get a rejection from a journal, I might just get those poems and send them to a different journal. And But it's a bit like betting on a racing horse. You need to sort of study the journal and see if your poems fit that journal. Like there's some journals that publish very difficult cryptic poets and I feel I'm a more plain speaking poet. So my poems, it's a waste of my time and energy to submit them to a journal that publishes cryptic, obscure, difficult poetry. And there's hundreds of poetry magazines around the world. So you know, there's a few in Singapore that I've submitted to and been published in. And then some years I get published more in, in UK literary journals than Australian journals. So there's plenty to look out on there. And with the internet, you can read sample poems from different magazines. And, and a good research, resource is a website called Poetry Kit. So if you just Google the word as one word poetry kit, you'll come up with lists of magazines worldwide and you can then individually check out those magazines' websites and figure out whether your poems could go there in those journals. That's a great resource, Peter. Thank you for sharing that with all of the listeners and for sharing what you do when your poems get rejected as well. And to finish the interview, I think I'd just like to ask if you've got any final words for emerging poets who are keen to see their work out there in the world. My biggest comments or tips are to please submit your poems to literary journals. It's a real test. If you'd like to be a published poet, all the published poets, they submit their poems to magazines. There is the the possibility of self-publishing a poetry book, but then there's no distribution except you yourself. And I like to have a proper publisher with national distribution. So I've built up my reputation so I can approach a reputable publisher when their window of submissions is open. And I've been able to impress them with my track record as someone who reads a lot live all around Australia and 
internationally and I can show them all the magazines I've been published in. So building up a track record and, yeah, doing live poetry readings, building up the confidence, becoming more professional, um, never overread at a live poetry reading, leave the audience wanting more. You can murder the audience by overreading. And I've seen that. I've seen that. And you're doing yourself harm by overreading. And remember that you're a student of words and language and really find out if you've got the will to face the blank page regularly and, and really be a, a poet. I tried the saxophone when I was young and realized I was fooling myself and I wasn't practicing. So that reality test of you and your poetry and enjoy reading other poets as well and learn from them and see how they put words together. I do meet too many poets who don't read enough other poets. That's it. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us on the podcast and sharing your creative process and your experience in getting published. It was great to hear your insights and your knowledge. Thank you. And I hope that's useful to listeners. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to read some of Peter Bukowski's poetry, you can check out his latest book, Our Ways on Earth, published by Recent Work Press in 2022. And to find out more about Pocketry, the home of unheard voices, visit www.pocketry.com.au and happy writing.